That song has long been my favorite Christmas carol. The images and lyrical poetry of John Mason Neal, the hymnist who wrote it in 1853, are compelling and immediately affective. I always liked it. First, because it mentions my name, good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen when the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even. As I grew older, I came to appreciate the legendary Reverend Howard Thurman's observation that it is actually after the star disappears and the shepherds and magi all go home that the work of Christmas truly begins, finding the lost, healing the wounded, and rebuilding a broken world. So it was that on the day after Christmas, Wenceslas gathered his faithful page and went forth into the ever-present storm brewing outside all of our windows in the town and countryside below and about us. And there he went to serve his people. And it was by virtue of this noble character or that character portrayed in the song that we all regard this Wenceslas today. There actually was a bona fide King Wenceslas who reigned in the early 900s in Bavaria. After about a decade as the uh, ruler, he was murdered by his jealous brother, Bolasaus the Cruel, is his name, who usurped the throne. Wenceslas became venerated as a martyr and a saint almost immediately after his death. Within a few decades, several biographies, or really hagiographies, which are biographies of saints, had been written about the man which had a powerful influence on the high Middle Ages conceptualization of the Rex Justus, or righteous king, a monarch whose power stems from great piety and sovereign vigor on behalf of his wards. The lyrics to Good King Wenceslas were written only 168 years ago, but its melody is much, much older, a 13th century tune in praise of the blossoming spring. Now, the 19th century was a period of rapid social and political change. In Western Europe, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing, drawing people off the countryside and into overpacked cities. In America, settlers were sweeping across the entire continent, from the Genesee to the Willamette Valleys, building canals and turnpikes, clearing forests, and building up the land. And they were expanding the franchise, for white men anyway, allowing the propertyless far more autonomy and political power than they had ever been granted before anywhere on earth. People like the transcendentalists Margaret Fuller and Ralph Waldo Emerson and others began drafting essays on women's rights 
the rights of non-Europeans, civil disobedience, the abolition of slavery, and other social issues and recognized blights. It was in this context that John Mason Neal wrote his famous hymn. And there were others writing in a similar vein at the same time. One of them was Charles Dickens. His well-known fable, A Christmas Carol, was published in 1843. In my high school, Mr. Westover, one of the English teachers, read it to us in assembly every year on the day, last day before Christmas break. And probably almost all of us have seen George C. Scott's adaptation and several others, including Peanuts cartoon characters. We've all seen these adaptations of Bob Cratchit's family, the, excuse me, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, and the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge. And what a great story it is. Now, Charles Dickens was one, was indeed actually the most popular author of his day in the literate world. All languages. His stories all describe the social and economic upheaval of mid-19th century England, its painful and personal psychological consequences, and the perseverance of some diligent souls who make the best of it against great odds. He was a fierce critic of the pervasive poverty and social stratification in Victorian society, I'm actually reading or listening on tape to a novel of Charles Dickens right now, A Tale of Two Cities, and enjoying it immensely. Especially his descriptions of sanitary and social conditions and of the many rogues, 'er ne'er-do-wells, and misanthropes who make up his stories are captivating and quite accurate. It's worth noting that Charles Dickens in those years regularly attended on a weekly basis a Unitarian church, a Unitarian Christian church, it was indeed, in London. Such churches were modern in that they affirmed modern analytical biblical scholarship and textual criticism, form criticism, literary criticism. So you could read the Bible analytically. It wasn't written by God. It was written by authors at various times. It could be accounted for. These churches were scientifically aligned and empirically ordered such that, the, uh, such that uh, Dickens' contemporary, Robert Browning, the poet, wrote of him, Mr. Dickens is an enlightened Unitarian. He had little taste for Roman Catholicism, spiritualism, or 19th century evangelicalism, which he considered to be extremes of Christianity that limited one's personal expressive power and clouded their reason. However, he was tolerant of all these religious views when held by others. And as anyone can read who plows through his corpus, His liberal UU views are sprinkled throughout his books and stories, not only in A Christmas Carol. Now, the birth of the prophet Jesus, as outlined in the gospel accounts, which is really just Matthew and Luke, um, accounts 
the, the birth, the nativity, this is pure myth, mythology. And as myth, it does not rise or fall on account of the facts. Western heroes tend to be born of humble origin in lowly circumstance, like though, unlike those of the East, who, like the Buddha, Confucius, or Lao Tzu, were royalty or people of high professional stature. And remember, in myth, all aspects of the story are happening all the time. The holy birth was not a one-time event. Our cultural salvation is coming to birth right now in the corners of our empire, or the global corners of the earth, maybe in Manila, or in San Salvador, or Emmanclaw, or Lake Stevens, for that matter. The archetype, of course, of such a birth is that of Jesus. In the account written by Matthew, it is as though the baby and his parents were political refugees in flight from Galilee to Egypt, pausing just long enough for the child to be delivered. As a myth, though, we must remember Jesus is being born and reborn every minute. It is not a one-time event, but a continuing one. In the words of the great Unitarian religious educator Sophia Lyon Faz, reading number 616 in our hymnal, each night a child is born is a holy night. Fathers and mothers sitting beside their children's cribs feel glory in the sight of a new life beginning. Time for singing, a time for wondering, a time for worshiping. The innocence, hopefulness, and inherent kindness of children. Here, right here, lies the redemption of the world. And this is the message at the heart of Christmas. For human beings, children are our light in the darkness, our bit of green amid the wet and gray of December. Like mistletoe, children can be somewhat parasitic, but simultaneously they save us too by reminding us of our truest values and engaging our hearts. The cardinal virtues of hope, faith, love, and forgiveness, and forgiveness are stronger in the average child than in most adults. And these virtues are what save us, and they are what save humanity as well. As it says in the first letter of John, chapter 4, a favorite passage of the old universalists, often emblazoned above the chancel in their churches, love one another because love is from God. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. These simple words are the heart of Christmas and the heart of Christianity. Indeed, they're the heart of all religion and in the heart of every child. Let Christmas 2021 be a wonderful celebration of life and love and joy in all of our homes. But let it be a reminder of all the ways we are called to these virtues every day, every hour. And by living them out in our daily lives, we bring the meaning of Christmas to its ultimate, most holy expression. So may it be. And amen.